Uh, welcome to Freedom and to those of you who are joining us online, whether it's through the website or Facebook or YouTube. It is good to have you be a part of Freedom Online. Thank you for tuning in today. We are uh, in a series right now that's entitled WDJD. What did Jesus do? Today's the third installment of that. If you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, I'll just tell you the reason that we think this is so important is because we have such a tendency to lose sight of the true person of who Jesus is, what he was like, and in all of our efforts to answer the question of WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's just so tempting to see Jesus in light of what we would do or to imagine him as just a better version of us, or worse still, to imagine that Jesus is like somebody that we were told is the, the real Christian figure in our community, only to find out way too late that they many times didn't look and act much like Jesus. As, as I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded of an extended family member. It was actually one of Jackie's family members, a great aunt, who passed away this past year in her mid-90s. And I had uh, the privilege of preaching her funeral and uh, getting to know her better in preparation for that. And uh, thankfully, she knew the Lord and um, had been a student of His Word and had a relationship with Christ. But for the last 80 years of her life, she had no connection to the local church which is always a sad thing, but when I heard her story, I understood very well why she had no connection to the church. Because when she was a child, and of course being in her mid-90s, the world she grew up in is so different from the world today, but uh, in her early adolescence, her parents went through a divorce. And I know this is hard for us to imagine, but uh, in the divorce, with many kids as a part of the, the picture there, when the mom and dad split... Some went with the mom and some went with the dad, and two daughters were completely left out in the cold. Jackie's great aunt, who we buried last year, was one of those two. They were far too young to have been left on their own, but, but they were. It was just the difficult circumstances of life that they faced. And in their desperation, they turned to the local church, and they started attending church. And they found some love and comfort and solace there and going to the church until the week that the pastor found out who their parents were and that they had been divorced. And so he immediately pulled the two little girls aside and told them that they would no longer be welcome at that church because they came from a broken home with divorced parents. You see, God hates divorce. And so surely we're supposed to hate divorced people, and the children of divorce must be people that we need to stay away from, right? Isn't that what Jesus would do? Well, everybody in the room knows that the answer to that is no, but it illustrates in a maybe overstated way how badly people can miss out on who Jesus really is and in the name of Jesus do all manner of things that have nothing to do with the true Jesus. Well, today we're going to get a wonderful glimpse again at the person of Jesus and how he loves people and interacts with people. As we look together in John chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open with me and read along. I don't know if this is the longest exchange that Jesus ever had one-on-one -on -one with a person, with a stranger. But if it's not the longest one recorded in Scripture, it, it certainly comes close I love John because he gives us these lengthier glimpses of how Jesus interacted with people. We're going to begin uh, in verse 1 
where John says, uh, the Pharisees, every time you read Pharisees in the back of your mind, you should hear, boo, you know, <laughs> these are the bad guys. These are the ones always out to get Jesus. These were the, the religious rule makers, the legalists. These were the wicked ones who held the power. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. They mean Jesus' relative, John the Baptist. That's saying a lot. Because people were coming from all over to be baptized by John. He had dunked a lot of people, and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more than John had. He says, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. You can only imagine, you know, if you have the choice of, of one of the lieutenants or Jesus himself, everybody lined up for Jesus. So Jesus didn't baptize. He, he let his disciples do the baptizing. And when the Lord learned of this, learned about the Pharisees hearing this, and, and you know, so suddenly the Pharisees are angry, and he knows they're plotting uh, his arrest and, and murder again. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Quick reminder of the geography of Israel. Israel has three parts, Galilee to the north, Judea to the south. Those are the two places that the Jews lived. And in between them, sandwiched in the middle, is Samaria. No good Jew would live in Samaria because the Samaritans were the, the descendants of all those ten tribes who had been defeated by the Assyrians and forced to intermarry. And so now they were the half-breeds. They were despised by the Jews to the extent that any time you traveled from Galilee to Judea or vice versa, you, you were faced with a dilemma because no good Jew really ever wanted to set foot in Samaria or to ever have to speak to these wicked people in their minds. They felt so superior to them. So you could either have to hurry through and hope you wouldn't meet anyone or go way out of your way across the Jordan and back around to get back into Jewish territory. And so as he's leaving uh, Judea, this is where you know Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Bethany and uh, Jericho, all these places are, to go back to the area that he spent most of his time ministering in, where the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and Nazareth and all those places are. He, he's faced with that dilemma, but Jesus isn't going to sidestep anyone. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. We get a little glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. It's noontime. It's hot. And Jesus is just physically exhausted, so he sits down by the well. This is not the main well of Sychar, which is in the village. They've got a more, uh, a newer, more modern well in the heart of the village. This is the old, ancient, many centuries old well that hardly anybody would use anymore, located outside of town. And Jesus sits down there. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. That is an understatement. You, a, a Jewish man would not speak to a Samaritan man, but he wouldn't dream of speaking to a Samaritan woman. So I don't know if, Jesus, if it's Jesus' dress or his accent or what, but something gives him away that he is Jewish, and the woman's thinking, well, he won't have anything to do with me, and she's floored that he's asking her for a drink. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus has asked her for a simple gift. He doesn't have a bucket or a rope. 
He's just asking her, would you help me out? I'm thirsty. Would you give me something to drink? The woman's just so floored that he would even speak to her. And Jesus, in this moment, recognizes this is a woman in deep pain. This is a woman with great needs. And in that moment, he he just thinks, I've asked her for something, but I would sure love to give her something right now. And he says, if you just realized what's happening here, yes, I've asked you to do something for me. But if you would just ask, if you would just be willing, I would love to give you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We're going to come back and unpack that, what it is that Jesus is offering her. And the woman said to him, Sir, uh, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And it feels like Jesus now suddenly just turns the conversation on a dime. But the truth of the matter is, he's pressing into the heart of the matter. Jesus has taken a conversation that started off at a very superficial level where it's just been a conversation about Could I have some water? Would you help me out here? To Jesus recognizing, as we often do, if we'll listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that this is an opportunity for really profound ministry to take place. And realizing that he's looking at a person in deep pain. I mean, can you imagine the baggage that this woman is carrying and how obvious it would be? This is the woman who has been married five times. And is now living with a man who is not married to her in a culture where if you were a divorced woman, you were an absolute reject. She's been rejected five times. Rest assured, in this period in history, she wasn't divorcing her husbands. Her husbands were divorcing her her and sending her away with no rights. She's been rejected five times. And now she's with a man who won't even do the honor of marrying her. Any normal woman in Sychar went to the village well to draw water. That was the, and unfortunately still in the third world today, women are stuck with the heavy uh, tasks. So women retrieve water. So she has the task of getting water like the other women of the village. She is such a reject, she doesn't get to draw water where the other women draw it. She has to hike way outside of town. If you draw water, you do it wherever it's closest. The only reason you would take such a hike to get water is because they have made it absolutely miserable for you to try and do it in the village where you interact with other people. The weight of her shame, her guilt, and her pain is just palpable. It's, it's so intense for her. And Jesus is offering her relief, lasting relief. And she says, I want that. I don't know what you're going to draw it with, but if you've got water that would do that, bring it on. It must be like super morphine or something if it can heal my pain. But I want some. And Jesus, in response to that, as I said, it seems like he's going to go in a new direction, but he's not. He understands how to get from the pain that she's living in to a place of healing and forgiveness. But you've got to sometimes... 
pass through the issue and deal with that to get to the point of healing. Jesus says in verse 16, go call your husband and come back. John doesn't say so, but you know there's a long pause right there. I mean, there has to be, doesn't there? Here's an opportunity to finally interact with another adult who doesn't know her shame story. She gets to just talk to another adult who doesn't hate her for who she is and what she's done and how she's failed in life. And now she's confronted with that, seemingly innocently. Go call your husband and come back. I'm sure she probably took a good long look at her feet, the ground, sighed and paused, and finally replied, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. And what you have just said is quite true. Now, on the surface of it, you, know, you could read that a bunch of different ways, but we know Jesus. We know what Jesus is like. He is the, the one human being, as John puts it in John 1, who is completely filled with grace and truth. He can speak the most heart-stopping level of truth. Just stop you in your tracks and yet speak those words with such grace that even when your worst shame story is brought to light... You're not overwhelmed with shame because there's compassion coming through those words and those eyes. This is the moment of decision for this woman. I mean, she's got essentially three choices, doesn't she? In the moment when Jesus has called her out and said, you've been married and divorced five times. You're living with a man that you're not married to. And, and in this moment, you know, she could just turn and run away like a scalded dog. That, that doesn't sound like a bad option in that moment, does it? I mean, seriously, don't you think if you were her, part of you would want to just run? Or, Jesus doesn't know her, she could just lie, cover up, or better still, defend herself. Well, yeah, I've been divorced five times, but you just don't know what lousy men they've been. I had a good reason every single time. She could have lied or defended herself, or she could just choose to own it. And just acknowledge, yep, you know my deepest secret. You know the source of my pain. She chose option C. She responded in verse 19, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. In other words, you are spot on. That's true. And then she brings up an issue that for years, I just assumed that she's trying to suddenly change the subject, divert Jesus to something else. And only recently have I come to appreciate, I don't think that's what she's doing at all. She says, following her acknowledgement that Jesus has spoken the truth, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. I used to just think that she was like suddenly bringing up just a theological dispute to see if she could change the subject. But I don't think that's the case at all anymore. I think what the woman is acknowledging here is, I never feel close to God. And my people say that if you go up on this mountain, you can feel this presence. That's the real place of worship. If you'll go there, you'll feel God. And it doesn't work for me. And you're a Jew, and the Jews say that if we go to Jerusalem, we'll feel God there. That's where God is. You'll feel the love and the nearness of God in Jerusalem. But I just need you to understand, I don't feel God at all anymore. 
I don't know if God loves me or cares about me. I feel so incredibly guilty, ashamed, and alone. Where do I need to go to feel God? And Jesus says in verse 21, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when He comes, He'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. You're looking at Him. Well, I don't know how many of you have had this kind of thing happen before, but what's about to happen, I've had this happen so many times. You get into a meaningful spiritual conversation with someone and you're sharing and you just sense, oh, something significant's taking place. And then somebody walks up and interrupts right in the middle of it. You ever had that happen before? I mean, it's like so consistent. Well, that's what happens here. Just then, they're really getting to the heart of things and the disciples return. And they are surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asks, what do you want or what are you talking about? Or why are you talking with her? So then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. I just have to imagine that when this woman, of all people, who has avoided everybody that she could at all costs, comes running back into town, and she's looking for anybody she can tell, you've got to come, you've got to see, you've got to come and meet this man who told me everything that I've ever done. You can only imagine how much the people must have snickered and said, yeah, I bet that was a doozy. I bet that's PG-13, what he told you. you know, why would you be excited about somebody who can tell you everything you've ever done? We all know what you've done, and we don't like you. And yet there's something different. This woman who's been hiding in shame, who's been going out of town even to draw water, now she's suddenly wanting to tell everybody, there is somebody who knows all that I've done, and he still likes me. Yeah, that'll make a difference. Well, meanwhile, Jesus' disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples, as they always did, they're sort of the keystone cops in these moments. And they said to each other, could somebody have brought him food? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. We're going to come back to that. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. They told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. What a powerful story. This poor lady whose life was just an ongoing saga of pain, rejection, attempts at intimacy, 
pain, rejection, just over and over this repeated cycle until she bumps into this Jewish stranger at the well and something profound happens that changes her life. Now we, in, in this series, have just been doing something very basic and, and it is an attempt to say before we think and, and say, well, we know what Jesus is all about and, and what he's doing, we're just asking the more fundamental question, all right, what did he say and do? Let's just first get that on the page. What did Jesus say and do? And then once we've got that laid out, let's ask, what can we learn from that? And I want us to be careful as we move through this passage to not let this be a story that's out here that we're just going to analyze and try and learn some truths from so that we can return to it whenever we need to and go, oh yeah, I remember that story. I need for you to actually press in and become a part of the story. You have the capacity to do that. We all do. If you keep the story out here, this is just going to be an intellectual exercise and today is going to have very little value. If today you're going to experience the power of God in your life, you've got to enter into the story because this woman's story needs to become our story. We need to enter into the experience. All right, as we begin to ask the question, what did Jesus say and do? Five things that I'll point out to you. And the first one is, Jesus made it clear that baptism was of of great importance to him. I know that's just one of those like little filler transitional paragraphs. It seems like on the surface... But in this series, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to not skip the things that's tempting to skip. Jesus is baptizing, is having his followers baptize people on a massive scale. As we just answered the question, we're, we're going to kind of run past these, so we're, we'll return to that in a minute. But baptism is a big deal to Jesus. Secondly, we learn that Jesus crossed ethnic and social barriers... Because he just cared about people. He didn't dodge Samaria. He didn't dodge women. He didn't dodge despised people. I mean, his own closest friends, the disciples, are judging him for talking to this woman. He didn't care about those things. He he looked around and just saw people that he loved. Third thing, Jesus claimed to be able to satisfy the deepest urges in our lives. That's so much of what this story is about. The whole thing of water... And going from water in the well to living water, this is what it's about. Jesus begins the conversation by dealing with a a real strong natural urge. It's the middle of the day. We've been walking in the heat, and I'm thirsty. I need something to drink. He is responding to a natural physical drive. We all deal with that. I'm feeling a little parched right now myself. I mean, we we get there, we head to the fridge. We, We... respond to and live by those natural drives. But Jesus, looking at this woman, realized, I'm looking at somebody who is driven, as all people are, by some other very intense feelings and drives in her. I mean, we all understand that in the the level of the natural, we all get hungry, we go get something to drink, or, or get something to eat. We get thirsty, we go get a drink, we get tired and sleepy, we go to bed, or we lean up next to our neighbor in church, and, you know, we, we whatever. We, we deal with those natural drives. But Jesus immediately goes to the next level because he understands as strong as as our drives are for food and water and sleep, we have stronger drives in us that push and affect our behavior. Drives for things like love, belonging, intimacy, security. 
And he looked at this woman and he realized, here is somebody whose most basic hungers and thirst, those most basic drives are not being met. And so she's running from relationship to relationship trying to get her bucket filled up. She's so thirsty for love, acceptance, intimacy, safety. And everywhere she's turned, she's just gotten heartache and rejection. And in response to that, Jesus is saying figuratively, I see what you're so thirsty for. And we both know the water that we're trying to dip out of this well We can drink everything we draw up right now, but we're all going to be thirsty again in a little while. But I am telling you, I have the capacity to quench the deepest thirst in your life so that you won't keep running back to the same old destructive behaviors that continue this cycle of rejection and pain again and again. Friends, you do understand this is the most common source of broken, messed up behavior for all of us. When we do things that are destructive and we do them again and again and again, it is because there is an unmet, fundamental, felt need inside of us. Sometimes that felt need is just for pain to stop. I hurt. I don't know why I hurt. And I need something to make it not hurt. So I drink or I take pills or I have sex, or I look at pornography, or, you know, you just keep adding to the list. I eat. I do something to make it not hurt. And Jesus said, I understand the deepest thirst, the deepest cravings in you. And I want to offer you a source that will quench that. So you won't have to keep running back to the same things that have messed you up again and again. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? It's a claim that probably sounded out of reach 2,000 years ago, but the, the really wild thing is, in 2018, some of us aren't real sure whether that claim is true. It sounds good, but it sounds a little too good to be true. People have been wrestling with this for thousands of years. The Lord has used this analogy of living water again and again. Jesus uses the same one in John 7. and the Old Testament, it's used over and over. In Jeremiah 2, the Lord says this, My people have committed two sins. They have, first of all, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. The second one is they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It's a, it's a word picture. He says, I understand what it is that you thirst for, what, what at the deepest part of you you're longing for and you don't look to me to get that where I could really satisfy that so you run out and you try and find your own source to satisfy that in you it's like you've sort of you, you don't have access now to the spring of this living water and since you don't have that you kind of dig your own cistern and it's like well I know how to satisfy myself through these kinds of relationships or these kinds of activities and he says yeah that cistern you made for yourself it's got a crack in the bottom it can't even hold water Which is a picture of how a lot of us have lived, trying to satisfy the deepest longings in our lives. The fourth thing that we see is that Jesus was direct in bringing painful issues to light. Boy, wasn't he. I thought we were just having a nice conversation about drawing water and being thirsty and having that thirst satisfied and 
suddenly we're not. We're talking about divorce and living together and the deepest sources of pain in life. Jesus understood that you can't get to the place of healing until you openly can talk about the source of pain. And then fifth and finally, Jesus predicted that he would transform faith from rituals into a personal connection with God. It's interesting that the woman, apparently, I mean, if you, you don't have to read between the lines a great deal to recognize that she has made the connection. I'm broken and only God can address my brokenness because when Jesus brings her story of shame and brokenness to light, where does she immediately turn in the conversation? Where do you go to get close to God? It's like she already knows God is the answer. He is the only hope that I have for my brokenness and I have no idea how to get to him. I've been told I'm supposed to follow the Samaritan ritual and go to this mountain and do blah, blah, and blah, but that never works for me. I never feel closer to God. In fact, I feel a little more like a reject when I've been there and done that. Do I need to try the Jewish thing? Do I need to go to Jerusalem and try that? Are we any different? In our brokenness and our pain, we try these different things to deal with it. And, and sometimes along the way, we come to the conclusion, I, I've been told, I've heard stories of how God could heal somebody like me, how he could fix what's broken in me. And I think I'll try it at church. And we go to church and we try this brand of church and, and it sounds good and the music's good. And, and I, I feel like I'm learning something, but I still feel just as broken and I still do the same things. But maybe this brand over here, I, I've heard at the Church of God or the Assemblies of God or the, you know, whatever church, I've heard they've got an even, even bigger well. I'll try it over there. Which brand do I need to try to finally get to this part of me? And Jesus is showing her it is not somebody's rituals that are ever going to set you free. In fact, I want to introduce you, he's saying, I want to introduce you to a new reality. That God is spirit. He is the ultimate essence of being. And he has made us in his image so that we have a capacity for connecting with him at the deepest and most intimate levels imaginable. You think that physical intimacy is the deepest level of intimacy and it is not. It is just a dim reflection of the kind of intimacy that we can have with God and the satisfaction that that can bring. And Jesus is saying, a time is coming. It is being ushered in through me that you're going to be able to enter into his presence and that kind of intimacy. And you won't have to go to this mountain or that mountain. You can have it all the time. Wow. Could it really be? Could it really be that good and that simple? Yeah, it really could. Well, what in the world do we make of all that? Five lessons that hopefully we can learn from Jesus' words and actions. The first one. Let's go back to the very beginning. Baptism and public professions of our faith are vital parts of following Jesus that we cannot afford to skip. It's not accidental and it's not coincidental that a passage that revolves around water and the metaphor of water and what it represents starts with a reference to the waters of baptism. You may say, what in the world? This is a, this is a stretch. It, no, it's not. It really is not. And some of you may be thinking, I didn't think this was a Baptist church. It's not. 
We are simply attempting to be true to the Scriptures. People who came and who wanted to experience forgiveness and healing and be connected to Jesus were immediately instructed to be baptized. This was the norm. When Jesus launched his public ministry, he went and got baptized. He didn't have any sins to be washed away, and yet it was significant that he set the pattern for what we must do. He went into the Jordan River and said, John, I need to be baptized. And John said, no, no, no. If somebody's going to be baptized, you baptize me. And Jesus said, no, you do this to fulfill all righteousness. What's the implication? We skip this and we don't do that. We don't fulfill all righteousness. Something important is going to happen here. What happened when Jesus got baptized? Immediately, the Spirit of God descends in power on Jesus. The voice of His Father thunders His approval from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased at His baptism. He had to enter into the water as an act of submission and obedience and identifying with the people of God. And in that moment, something so significant happened. I will never forget. It's probably been, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago. The last church that I pastored, um, we would baptize at the Fairhope public pool, the indoor pool. And we had had another Sunday afternoon service doing that. We baptized several people that day and one of them was uh, a senior adult man who I didn't know very well but nice guy um, had recently become a part of the church and I didn't notice anything that you know significant in the moment baptized him like I did several other people that day but he pulled me aside a couple of months later and he said I want to tell you something I want to tell you about the day that I got baptized he said you probably don't know this but I was not happy about being baptized he said, I didn't come from that kind of background. I've been a Christian for over 30 years. And then you come along and tell me I need to be baptized. And I didn't like it. But he said, it bugged me so much, you know, that I just finally said, I'm going to let him baptize me, but I'm not going to like it. I'm going to check the box. And he said, that day you baptized me, I had a bad attitude. I was just thinking the whole time going in there, I am just doing it to make you happy. Talking about me thinking, well, that's an open door to a blessing, isn't it? And he, he said, I'm just telling you the truth. I had a rotten attitude, but I did it anyway. And he said, I've just got to tell you, I went in with a bad attitude. But when I did that, when I got baptized, God touched me. He said, I can't even explain it, but something happened in my life and I have not been the same since. God just started moving in my life and it started the moment I got baptized and I got baptized with a bad attitude. I just did it to satisfy my preacher. And he still touched me. Friends, there's something about that. When Jesus commissioned his followers, you go out into all the world. I want you to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. I want you to make disciples of them. But the first thing he says to do with a disciple is you take them in the water and you baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost. And I want to tell you, when you do that act of obedience, publicly declaring, I belong to Jesus, from now on I'm going to live for Jesus, you enter into the water and you you get a dose of living water. And some of us want to go, oh, it ain't that simple. Sometimes it is. 
Blessing always follows obedience. Some of you have been around long enough that you're like, are you going to go there again? I'm going to go there till I die. Blessing always follows obedience. Blessing always follows obedience. And when the first thing that Jesus has told us to do, when we go, eh, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I don't think I'm going to do that. I hate to get my hair wet. I don't like being in front of people. Let's just don't take this too far. But Jesus, I'll read my Bible and go to church. I may even tithe. The moment that Jesus gives us an instruction and we go, I don't think I want to go that far. We close off one of the conduits of blessing from God into our lives. Jesus is saying, I want to be not just a bucket of water in your life. I want to be a spring of living water welling up, filling the deepest hungers and thirsts in your life. But you can't limit that. You can't shut off the flow by saying, well, I'll be obedient here and there, but I don't want to be obedient to that. If you want to receive the water, step in the water, step out and say, I belong to Jesus. I surrender to Jesus. If you've missed this, if you've missed this, don't you be shocked if a part of your healing happens when you go back into the water. I'm not trying to manipulate you. It's just time some of us reopened the conduit that we closed off a long time ago when we refused to obey. If you need to fix that, pull out that little card, check the box. I need to be baptized. Well, why would we not go there? Let's just do it. We're not worried about numbers. We're not worried. I'm not saying that for you to satisfy me. I want you to live in abundance. I want you to get the full adult dose of the flow of God's living water in your life. Don't let some act of disobedience shut that off. You with me? Okay. Number two. The gospel is often most effective in reaching the rejected and the marginalized. I know that's kind of obvious, but it's just worth saying. Jesus is in a place that the disciples are just going, can we get back on the trail and get out of this God-forsaken territory? And Jesus stops the guys and he says, you know the saying that Jews are always saying, four more months until the harvest. You know, four months between the time you plant until the time you harvest. The whole point of that saying was, a lot of times you just got to wait. You just got to be willing to wait. And Jesus said, I want you to understand. And, and you know when people are witnessing, you'll hear that all the time. Well, sometimes you just plant the seeds and you don't know when that's going to bear fruit. And that, that is truth. But Jesus is making the point. We're not just planting seeds. There's a harvest to be taken. And he said, I want you to open your eyes and look around you. The fields are wide in the harvest. What fields? The Samaritan fields. The half-breed reject fields. He said, that's where the fields are wide in the harvest. You want to find people today in Fairhope on the eastern shore who are ready for the gospel? You find people who are hurting and in need. You want me to tell you who's not ready? people who are happy and comfortable and loving life where they are right now. You couldn't lead them to Jesus with a stick and a pistol. You couldn't. You can't. If they are satisfied where they are, you can witness till the cows come home. You have got to get to a point that you have a need in order for the good news to be good. And Jesus said, I want to tell you, here in Samaria, where the Jews hate everybody and where life is hard and where they have been oppressed, the, we, the fields are wide into harvest. You start looking for people who are hurting and in need, and I'll show you people who are much more ready to hear the good news of Jesus. Look for the rejected and the marginalized. Number three, without God's insight and power, our lives are driven by felt needs. And I... I just unpack this a little bit already. 
Just as in the natural, we're driven by those needs. Church is going to let out. We're going to be driven to a restaurant, right? We're, we're, felt needs are going to take us to lunch. Felt needs will drive your life. And as I said, we carry felt needs that, that are more fundamental and that are stronger than the drive for food and sleep and, and water. A need for intimacy, a need for love and security and connection, those kinds of things. And, and when those aren't met, we experience pain, when we experience trauma, and it, it causes you know, some real lasting brokenness and pain. And then we just feel this desperate need. Just, I just need something to fix the pain. And so then we, we begin to medicate in all these different ways. I hurt all the time, but... When I'm being intimate with somebody, I'm not hurting in that moment. So we, we just look for all these opportunities for intimacy. Or when I'm, when I'm looking at this, these images on my computer screen, I, I, in those moments I can enter into a world that's, that's an illusion and I don't feel pain here. When I'm, when I'm drinking and have a buzz, I, I don't feel pain. When, when I'm doing, you know, popping food in my mouth, even though at one level... You know, my struggle with how much I eat causes so much pain. And yet while I'm eating, I don't feel pain. And so I keep returning to these destructive behaviors. That isn't going to ever resolve itself. Can we agree on that? This never... One of the oldest lies in the world is time heals everything. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And some people have been just waiting for that lie to become a reality. This will not resolve itself. Without God's insight as to what's driving this and God's power to heal, we'll just live driven by this all the time. Now, this, is, this truly is the core of what makes Celebrate Recovery so profound and powerful. Because Celebrate Recovery is designed in a very healthy environment where everybody can acknowledge that they're broken and that's driven to things that are destructive and, and that they've got to go back and deal with the root of this. In that kind of environment, you, you are led through a biblical process of getting to the root of this. Why am I doing what I do? Where did this get off track? And what is it that I'm trying to satisfy or numb or medicate that causes me to act out again and again? I don't want to tell you there's real healing there. It's a process for healing. The fourth truth, and this really is the heart of the matter today, it's only when we get honest about our deepest hurts and failures that we can experience healing. It would have been so much easier to just have a conversation about the weather, about Jacob and his will, about anything else on earth. Jesus wanted this woman to get forgiveness and healing. And you can't get them by continuing to gloss over the source. Jesus had no desire to shame her or to hurt her. He wanted her to experience healing. But in order for that to happen, the real issue had to be brought to light. And so he did. Truth and grace bound up together. One of the basic things we've got to understand, we don't like this truth. We want something else to be the truth other than what I'm about to say. But you, you can bank on what I'm fixing to tell you. We turn to God for forgiveness. And that's between us and God. You don't need anybody else in the equation to get forgiveness. You can turn directly to God. But if you want healing, 
almost 100% of the time is going to involve somebody else. We confess to God for forgiveness, and we confess to one another for healing. It's still God's power. And He could have done it any way that He wanted to. And we would prefer, particularly us Protestants, we would prefer to leave everybody else out of the equation, right? I don't want to talk to you about my stuff. I just want to talk to Jesus. And in His wisdom, God has designed a way that things work where the flow of power for inner healing almost always will involve somebody else. Jesus knew that he was going to have to be a conduit as a human being for this woman to experience healing for what she had done. He was going to have to bring that out in the open. And with that being voiced, she was going to need to see the reality that she was still loved and accepted. Something profound happens in that moment. That's what James is talking about when in James 5.16, he says, So always tell each other the wrong things that you've done and then pray for each other. Do this and God can heal you. There's no way around it. This is where it gets dicey. There are a bunch of us here, a bunch of people watching and listening online right now, carrying hurt, shame, Feelings of rejection and worthlessness. And you've come and gone at church countless times. You came in with it and you left with it. You've watched countless sermons online and you had that pain when you started and you have that pain when you leave. At some point along the way, we've got to stop doing the ritual. We've got to stop going up to this mountain and that mountain to hope that that's going to make us better and realize I've got to get honest about my pain if I'm going to ever enter into the healing that God has for me. And that's true here today. There are people that God wants to do a profound, life-changing work of healing in today. And it's very much up to us whether we tap into His power and His grace to do that. Fifth and final truth is this. We must consciously work to move beyond religious rituals into worship, into an encounter with God. I I like how Peterson translates verses 23 and 24 when he says, your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. There are a lot of people, especially in our tradition, who come to church chasing truth. Now, that's not a bad thing, but you know what I'm talking about? It's like... You know, Tony, we hope you bring us some good songs today, but, you know, don't run too long because we're here for truth. Of course, there are people who are the other extreme. They're like, preacher, we wish you'd preach shorter and we could sing longer. We, we can chase after either extreme. But there are a lot of people who are chasing truth when they come to church. And Jesus said, it's not just a chase for the truth. You have to consciously choose to engage your spirit, the deepest part of who you are, the part of you that has the capacity to intimately connect with God. That's the kind of people the Father is looking for. Underline this line, if you will. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship Him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. Man, that's profound. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, you can come and 
just try and present the most spiritual looking image and I'm just so into it. And God be so totally unimpressed with that. See, God is just searching for those who would just be real and be themselves, express their joy, express their pain, express the reality of who they are and their deep hunger for God. And sometimes that's beautiful and sometimes it's just a hot mess. And God says, I love to connect with those people. I love to pour out good things on those people. Now let's just bring it home. We're about to move into the next part of worship. And we're, you know, for however many of us there are in the room, there's 150 of us or whatever, there's 150 different places that we are in life. Everybody doesn't need the same thing. Some of you, you're at the best place you've been in a long time. Wonderful. Give thanks to God for that. But you're also surrounded by a bunch of people who aren't at the same place, some of whom are hurting a lot. Some who don't even understand their own behavior and don't know how long it's going to be until they screw up again. And that causes anxiety and pain and worry. And the dilemma becomes, will we let the next portion of the service just be another ritual? We'll sing another song or two. We'll wait it out. We'll receive the offering and then we'll go home. Or could this next period be a time where we just go, enough. Enough of the ritual. I'm done with the ritual. God, I need something from you today. And if that means I'm going to need to tell somebody else, I'm hurting. I'm in a bad place. I need a touch from God today. I need God to heal me. I need him to heal the deepest part of me. Are you desperate enough that you tell somebody that and let them pray over you and just in simple faith believe that God could do something profound in your life? Because for some of us, it's going to be just that simple. The invitation is open to you. You may need to just deal with God over a matter of forgiveness. But if you need healing, there's a good chance he's going to involve somebody else in that. We're going to take some time to allow for that. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? God, we are so grateful for your love and for your mercy in our lives. And thank you that you deal with us out of a heart of compassion. Jesus, we are moved to watch how you would interact with the most despised, the most broken, and just have so much grace and help to offer. This woman who was so afraid of others, whose life was transformed in a moment when she encountered your love, just truth in your presence. Lord, you know we don't have any snake oil to sell here today that would fix anyone, but we so believe in the power of your Holy Spirit to heal broken hearts, to heal hurting hearts. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you come? Please come and breathe life in this place. Please come and be the well of living water that would satisfy our deepest longings. We just pause now and bind the enemy, every spirit from the kingdom of darkness that would seek to hold people in bondage here today. In the name of Jesus, we silence you and command you. Leave this place. Leave these people. Go to the place that Jesus instructs, but do not return here or to these people. And Holy Spirit, we ask you now, come and like a wind sweeping across this room, come and work in our lives.
bring gifts of forgiveness, of conviction, and healing, we pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.